Good morning. Today's reading is John 14, 15 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. You know, there's a question that faithful followers of Jesus ask that simultaneously atheists demand. It's one of the most important questions I don't think we ask often enough in the everyday aspects of our everyday lives, and it's this. Where is God? And I think what Jesus has to say here is maybe one of the most audacious claims, not just in the realm of religious conversation, but with life. And yet it can really seem, especially for folks who are here today or watching online, like a cliche, especially in the 21st century, having heard something of Jesus' words here in some way, shape, or form. But what's so astounding to me is that out of all the places that God longs to dwell. When Jesus goes looking on Zillow, right, or any of those types of spaces, when he's looking for where he's going to stay, here's what's so fascinating. What Jesus tells you and me today is that God, he wants to make his home in us. He wants to make his home in us. And man, friends, I sat in this this week, and this is not a metaphor. It's beyond frankly, anything that we can genuinely exhaust in our comprehension, that the God who has created the expanse of the universe and its various dimensions or layers or what we continue to explore about the dynamic reality of the universe that is beyond our comprehension wants to come and dwell here. I love the way that Teresa of Avila said, no, I still didn't get it, Avila <laughs> Avila, <laughs> old habits die hard, friends. She says, she's a 16th century follower of Jesus, absolutely brilliant. She says, if I had understood as I do now that in this little place of my soul dwelt so great a king, I would not have left him alone so often. 
But what a marvelous thing that he who would fill a thousand worlds and many more with his grandeur would enclose himself in something so small. And then she goes on to say, since he is Lord, he is free to do what he wants. And since he loves us, he adapts himself to our size. Think about this. The one that you hunger for, that you thirst for, and everything that we go chasing after, it's really him we long to know and to be known by. He's as close as our heartbeat. When you feel the pump in your chest, when you finally take a moment to breathe, and you feel the blood coursing through your veins, and you feel just a second to notice that you are indeed alive, that's how close God is. That he wants to dwell there. But do we really want that? I think that's a really important question. You know, there's the possibility question. Is this even possible, right? And there's warrant to that and having discussion and, and wrestling through the possibility, the probability of the creator of the universe actually dwelling within us as human beings. But I think the deeper and truer questions aren't necessarily as to, as to as, uh, pertaining to what is possible, but more as to what is desirable. I think there's a lot of questions we don't ask, not because we don't have the answer, it's because we don't want to know the answer. And I want you to imagine, you know, we just sang today, Aaliyah with her leadership of the team guiding us. I, I long for you more than the air I breathe, right? This language, I need you, speaking of the Spirit and the Father and the Son. I want you to just do me a favor, take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Imagine the Spirit of God dwelling in us in the same way that that breath just did. Where the nudges within our gut that we sometimes think might be coming from the Lord, if this were actually true and we leaned into it, would feel less like nudges and more like commands. I mean, what if Here's, this is where it gets real, friends. What if God says something you don't like because he's not you? What if God isn't someplace somewhere else while we're engaged in destructive behavior so that the first time he hears about is when we confess, but he's in us while we're engaged in sinful, destructive, unholy behavior? He's that close. Apostle Paul goes there in his letter to the church in Corinth. I mean, what if God calls you to move? What if he calls you to say a loving word? What if he calls you to a rebuke? What if he calls you to go and to do something that highly might put a relationship at risk, that might bring you out of your comfort zone, that frankly may not even feel like you? What do you do when saying no to that feels as real as looking in the eyes of your parents, your spouse, your boss, or a friend? What if it were that real and palpable? I'm not saying you wouldn't have a choice. I'm just saying the choices we would make would come with that much more weight with a realization of God's presence within us. I mean, do you really want that? I mean, think about this, friends. There's an accountability and a joy, but a weight that comes with the reality of God, the creator of the universe, dwelling deep within you. And I think before we can answer the question, where is God? 
we have to ask another question. Where are you? The two are intimately interconnected, friends. Where is God and where are you? Jesus makes the connection here because he knows this. He knows you, he knows me, he knows us and the dynamics in which we wrestle on a daily basis, the mixture of desires and longings. As much as we say we want God near, there are plenty of times we hope he doesn't see what we're doing. As much as we say that we want God near, we really want to choose what we want to choose and expect him to baptize it rather than us be baptized by him. Do we really want this? Well, today we're going to see how these two questions link up. Where is God and where are you? And we're going to see what it means in our everyday life. And then we're going to see why this is so beautiful of an invitation. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We step into a continued conversation that we've seen with Jesus that he's been having with his closest followers, his friends over dinner. And Jesus has gone above and beyond to communicate his love, right? I mean, the supreme ruler of the universe, the king, God incarnate, humbles himself and he washes the feet of those who are to serve him and to serve his kingdom purposes. He goes to the nth degree to communicate his love. He reiterates how he loves them. Then he even says, I've go- I'm going away to do what? Prepare a place for him? No, for you. I'm going to actually go prepare a place for you and then I'm gonna come back for you because I love you. It's all about, this is what I'm doing for you. Do you see how I love you? Again and again, Jesus' love is crystal clear. He is taking the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth step towards you and me. But what is to be our response to such a love? And that's where we land today. We see in chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me. In chapter 14, verse 21, twice over, those who love me. Or this is what it means to love me. And then verse 23, if anyone loves me. You see, it's absolutely clear If you just take a moment to look at the life of Jesus, that he loves us. The real question is, do we love him? That's the question before us today. Look with me now at verses 15 and 7 through 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's speaking of the day after his death, after his resurrection, where he will breathe on the disciples. We'll get there. Just stay with us over these months. And the Spirit of God will come to dwell within them not just be among them. And see, Jesus is abundantly clear here that God lives in those who love Jesus. God lives in those who love Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear here that loving Jesus is not a condition for Jesus loving you. 
I don't want this at all to come across as transactionalism or manipulation, as if Jesus is setting the stage before he will ever communicate his love towards you. You must do all of these things. Listen, friends, John 1 is all we need to start to get a glimpse of God's love towards us. Let's not just start at the cross. John 1 starts with creation, right? God loves us so much that he created us. He didn't need us. It wasn't like, you know what? I have a lack in my life. I'm going to create these humans and the rest of creation to fill the God-sized hole that I have in God, right? No. He created all of us out of love. And then we reject him. (laughs) So what does he do? John continues. He came to us again and again and again, even though we said, oh, no, we know what's best. We don't need you. We'd rather have darkness rather than light. And so he comes. And then to really make it crystal clear, he becomes human. And he lives among us so that he can put it in plain language to you and to me. And then he goes all the way to the cross and he will die. And then he rises again. Why? To love us. But that's not enough. (laughs) I'm sorry, friends. This just gets me blown away that this is who God is. This is the one who breathed life in you. He's not satisfied to just show his love. Where he wants to be is he wants to take the next step of intimacy. This is marriage language, folks. He wants to live in you. Where the two become one with the promise of commitment and with the great confidence that death will never part. Friends, this is extraordinary. You see, God will come as close as our affections will allow. And all of this is a deep invitation to intimacy. He already loves us, friends. He's come to great lengths. The Apostle Paul, who knew Jesus better than anyone else in the 21st century did, he knew Jesus well. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God's shown his love for us in this. What? While we were sinners, we wanted nothing to do with God. He died for us anyway. He knows this. Do we know this? Jesus has communicated. God in the flesh has communicated love, love, love towards you and me. The real question is do we love him? And what's so astounding, friends, don't get this confused. God is a respecter of boundaries. I find that so astounding. That as the designer of human beings, he also defines what healthy humanity and relationship looks like. He gets to do that. We don't get to twist it or death comes knocking at the door. Relational death, physical death, and so on. And what Jesus requires once again, is this language of marriage. If you want me to move in, if you want me to move in, you got to love me. You got to commit to me. You got to promise to me. Not because you'll ever be good enough, but you got to love me. You got to let God be God. And you got to let him show up the way that he shows up for you. You don't get to dictate who God is. And you love him for him. And he moves in to the depths of our souls. Now, I know for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while or you know your theology, you might be asking the question, well, Gabe, how is this different from what theologians call omnipresence? 
where God is indeed everywhere, right? The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, I can go to the heights of heaven or the depths of death, and you're still there. Where can I go to avoid your spirit? God's omnipresence, his awareness of all spaces and time is real. But what he's inviting us to here is a heightened relational experience of him. You see, God may be aware of all space, of all time, but we are not. And when he comes to dwell within us, we get a richer experience of his life and a deeper intimacy of walking with it, walking with him through true reality as he sees. It's a richer experience. Now, some might be saying, well, is this then panentheism? Some of you may know that term as well, or this framework that is held in some religious circles. The idea that all of creation is somehow subsumed within God, that by your very existence, God is in you. Jesus is just trying to reveal what already is. No, friends, that's not what he says. Not if you study what Jesus has said. Jesus is very clear that some have God in them and some don't. There's a move-in date. If it were always true, what would his words mean but empty falsehoods? And if Jesus is indeed a liar, why are we here today? So this is not panentheism. As if you already have what you already need. As if all people are God's children in the fact that we are eternally bound to him in bliss. No, 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 no. There is a reciprocity here. How will we respond? You see, before we get to where is God, I need to ask you, where are you? And are you in a loving relationship with Jesus? I know sometimes we can overemphasize the personal reality of the individual experience and intimacy we have with God that we exclude other aspects of his transcendence and his wonder and his holiness but friends, it is not because we overemphasize one, it's because we underemphasize the other. This is very real and live. Are you in a loving, committed relationship with Jesus? If not, I'm going to tell you right now, God is not in you. That's what Jesus says. And the only reason I say that is because I love Jesus enough to accurately portray what he has said. I may have my own perspectives, my own wrestlings, but my job is to tell you what Jesus said. And so if you are not in a loving relationship with Jesus today, God is not in you, but he wants to be. I don't want you to miss that. What does it mean to love Jesus then? How do you know? And here's what's so great about Jesus his goal is never to build up barriers that are impassable. He does give clarity that does demand a response. And it's not any response you want it to be. It's got to be his response because he's that good and he longs for your, that your good that great. And he says love is not some squishy thing. Now, it involves our affections. It involves our feelings. Please don't leave your feelings at the door. God gave you those too. It involves an experience, but it's not merely adopting ideas about God. Oh, friends, it's so easy to try to control God when he's something off distant that we can kind of dissect. The moment we start looking for the irreducible minimum, it's just a way to control Jesus, friends. When you let him in, when you look into a relationship, you say, what else do you want? <laughs> That's what love is. 
Look with me at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. To love Jesus is to obey him. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not when he just agrees with you. Listen, friends, if you only follow Jesus when he agrees with you, you got to check whether you love him. You just found someone who agrees with you sometimes. Love and obeying commandments and trust is when you continue to follow Jesus even when you don't understand. That's obedience. That's keeping. And what is it? This is where we get back to kind of legalism, right? Like, what are his commands? I could start listing off things that Jesus said, but listen what, listen later, if you look later in the passage in verse 23, he says, anyone who keeps my word, he goes one step further. So don't start listing off what did Jesus command. Look at John. What did Jesus command? We could look at specific things he commanded, but he also quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and affirms their validity in our life today. Look at Jesus's life. A chaste man who sought to honor Jesus with every aspect of his life. Look at who Jesus gives authority to. The apostles. You can't say, you know, I like Jesus, but I hate the apostles. You don't like Jesus then. He gave them authority to have authority over us and responsibility to guide us in the ways of Jesus. All of this is what Jesus is saying. If you really love me, stop saying, what do I have to do and what can I cut out? Come on. You don't love him. You're using him. If you love someone, you're like, man, where do we need to go? What do we need to do? What, where, does, where, where have you said? Have you spoken on this? Okay, I'll follow you. That's love, friends. And it's not a drudgery. You know why? And this is so strategic what Jesus does. It always starts with love. Love always shows itself in obedience. But it starts and it's an outcome of love. When you love someone, you'll wash the dishes a thousand times over without feeling like you need to keep a tally. When you love someone, you'll, oh, you got an emergency? I'll be there right now. When you love someone, you show up and you don't try to keep score. You don't try to look for excuses. You're just there. You know, we all know one-sided relationships don't work, Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I got real. I appreciate that. Amen. A spouse that is always serving hand and foot and never receiving is not a marriage and it's definitely not love. It's not true in friendships. It may be codependency, but it isn't love. You see what marriage, what love, union with God, oneness with him. And really in any relationship, you become a learner, don't you? You're like, ooh, what do they love? What do they like? How do they feel love, right? Sometimes we talk about the love languages. Oh, you know, I always say my daughter, you know, her, her love language is material things. It's called gifts. But, you know, it's like, hey. <laughs> you know, but you learn. And then you, and then you go, okay. She feels really valued in that way. Or some, some folks really are valued in words of affirmation way more than gifts. Like you start to learn and you're like, oh, I just want them to know I love it. And you learn them. You want to learn Jesus? His love language is obedience and trust, friends. 
you want to love Jesus, listen to what he says. Say, I trust you. I know who you are. Whatever you say, you've, you've got to have my best in mind. Even though I think it's this, even though my culture tells me it's this. And we're going to look more at that next week. But the big problem is, friends, is it, for you and for, and for me, it's not natural for us to obey. We would much rather trust ourselves. We don't like authority of any kind. Nobody can tell me what to believe and think. That's real common in our culture. Or if you've been wounded by someone. Man, I tell you what, friends. We are so driven in our culture by comfort and status quo. This is what's worked. It's worked enough. I'm not changing. We've already made up our mind before we even have the conversation. So what do we do? Jesus knows we need a lot of help. Look with me. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. I think it's so important to note, just real quick, he says another helper, because you know who is the first one? Jesus himself. (laughs) When you get this spirit, all friends, he's going to look, smell, he's going to act like Jesus, and he's going to point you his way. Another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And will be in you. You know, this word helper, um, in the Greek, anyway, in the original language, is pretty complex. You may have a different translation that captures counselor. Some go very, you know, straight to the Greek paraclete, right? It's a pretty robust word. But I think helper fits here. It applies well to what we need when the Spirit of God comes. And we're stepping into mystery, friends, because listen, I, there's an element where we just can't fully comprehend this, and that ought to be okay. If God's 3D, of course he can make us in 2D, right? Whatever the Creator has made, he himself must be greater than what he has created. Doesn't that logically make sense? And so when we think of the Father and the Son, which Jesus says, if you look at, the, look at the Son, you've seen the Father. What? If you, you know, look for the Father, you will find the Son. Like there's this element that the, the two are in one. And now he brings in the Spirit. And now where the Spirit goes, now the Father and the Son are in with the Spirit. And when the Spirit is in you, the Father and the Son are in you. There's this beautiful three in one. And we're invited into that. This extraordinary union. But theologians have called, and I know, and it makes some people blush, but old Greek Orthodox folks, they know how to get it right, this interpenetration of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where they are just enjoying and delighting in one another. They are three, yet one. It is still true of what the Shema said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet he is simultaneously three. You cannot now think of God in one isolation of the other. When you think of the Son, you must also understand the Spirit and the Father. They come together because they are one. And all of who he is dwells, not just with, Not somewhere over there in the back corner. Not hiding in the gallery, waiting for us to come out to see how we might respond to what he said. In you right now. And who doesn't want a helper? I want somebody to help me with my barriers and my goals. Wait, wait, wait. It's way more intense than that. You see, when you love Jesus... 
The Spirit confronts lies from the inside out. Isn't it fascinating that the Spirit of truth, out of all the places the Spirit goes, He starts in your own heart? Because in your own heart is the hardest space for truth to be alive. You see, the greatest lies aren't the ones said in culture. The greatest lies aren't the ones that were said by your parents. The greatest lies aren't the ones that you hear from your unbelieving coworker or your neighbor. The greatest lies are the ones we tell ourselves again and again. And granted, they may come or have been started in some of these sources, but we are the ones who continue to reverberate them within us. And listen, when God comes to dwell within us, he will not coexist with lies. He is a terrible roommate with lies. He sees lies leaving the dishes at the sink. He sees lies leaving the door open at 2 a.m. so people come and steal your TV. He sees lies using all your toilet paper and buying none. And he's like, get out. That's it. Why? Because he doesn't want your lies to bulldoze you. He loves you too much. He's not going to skirt around the issue because you're afraid of conflict with your own heart. He says the hard things, even when it feels like death, friends. You want to know why? Because you know what holds you back from obedience to his commands? Lies. You know what holds you back from realizing the depth of God making his home within you? Lies. You know what keeps you from living the life you long to live, the life you were designed to live? Lies. It's these lies, friends. Oh, they're very sweet. They're the lies that we told ourselves in the midst of trauma. The lies we were told in trauma that we've internalized. The lies that we held fast to because they got us out of a really tough spot. They helped us survive. There, here's the deal, friends. Some lies can get you someplace, but they can't get you all the way. That's where we start to misunderstand lies. They get you a little bit but they'll never take you all the way. It's like a shot of an adrenaline right in the depths of your heart and you feel like you've got this energy. But friends, it's more like sugar. You eat a little bit, you get a high and the crash is great. This is why the devil is called what? The father of lies. Because he knows the potency. He knows how we get addicted to them and how they soothe us like soft R&B all the way down. <laughs> Now, <laughs> sorry, friends, all the way down to our death. But see, you and I, we, we are contradictions. Every counselor knows their battle, their greatest battle is with the person who comes in their office. Every single person who goes into a counselor's office simultaneously has done enough to pursue their help but is dying, I mean dying, to avoid seeing what's actually the problem. Every counselor knows this. They have to battle. Most folks think that this is their problem, when in reality, it's way down here. And we may really want change, but we go in and we self-sabotage. That's why they have to ask so many questions. Because we're unwilling to see what's actually there, what's actually driving us. Every counselor knows this. 
But when God comes to dwell in us, nothing hides. And he sees the topography of our souls with its rocky crags and its deep valleys. And he longs even for what we see at the end of Revelation to come true in the depths of our souls for the new Jerusalem to dwell deep within us and descend from heaven and actually change the landscape of our internal reality and him dwell there. Ugh. He wants to move in and confront. Friends, I, I love artists. And uh, if you haven't picked up uh, this particular guide to our show, um, Jaron Avery is a brilliant artist. He goes to our Brookside <laughs> campus. And he writes specifically about the importance as an artist having people who bring good critique. I love what he says here. He says, in, recent in a recent counseling session, my counselor commented the only way out of this is, a rela is relationships. She knew, as we all do, that healing is a difficult one. Without the support of a community and relationships, it's nearly impossible to grow and heal. Art has created some amazing relationships for me. Listen to what he says. A critique with someone you trust is similar to getting counseling or emotional care from a friend, therapist, or pastor. You bring what you have, good and bad, to the table, no hiding. You describe how you got here, what is still unsure. The work is out there, and like a counselor, that trusted person helps you through it. They show you what is strong and needs to be highlighted or encouraged, and this is important, what is weak and needs to be strengthened or edited out. You leave with more tools and a better vision of what you are doing, and you know that you are not alone in this. That is relationship through art, healing through art. The key thing is you got to listen, friends, and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to slowly attend to your soul and the lies that we have deep hidden within ourselves, the false stories that we hold as gospel truth. Lies like, no one has to know. Oh, he knows, he sees. Lies like, I've got to be in control. You never were. Lies like, I don't need anyone. Oh, yes, you do. Lies like, if I just get that, I'll be happy. No, you won't. Lies like, oh, this isn't wrong for me. They don't know. It is wrong, and it's wrong for you, and it's going to lead to deep pain. But then, of course, there are the deeper and scarier lies. The lies like, I'm not loved. Friends, yes, you are. Lies like, if anyone saw the real me, they would leave. And we usually have stories of comparison, like my parents did, like my spouse did like my child did, like my friend did. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. You know, it was earlier this week, I was meeting with my coach. And, uh, and Dr. Tracy, she was like, I was laying out, I was like, I'm just frustrated with myself. I've overbooked myself again, right? <laughs> Here we are again. Um, and naming the reasons why I'm feeling overwhelmed or stressed and just more frustrated that I'm back to where I was. Anybody been there before? Anyone? Yeah. More of you would raise your hand if you were listening. So <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not fair. That's not fair. It's me speaking out of my wounds. All right. Hang with me. Hang with me. <clears throat> And I started, and she's like, oh, Gabe, do you realize that those are trauma responses? Because you felt like you had to perform a certain way. You have to say yes to enough for people to stay. 
Because the moment you say a hard thing, people walk away. The moment you say what is on God's word or the moment in your own family dynamics, the hard things were said because sin was not allowed to continue, people walk away because they don't want to approach their own brokenness. And so you feel like you've got to overcommit to justify yourself. I was like, Dr. Tracy, I didn't want to go to church today. <laughs> and she's like, friend, you, it's, it's not, life isn't always linear. Sometimes it's circular. And then she quoted Shrek. I love it. <laughs> she's like, Gabe, we're layers, like an onion. And those lies that you've been believing for over 30-some years You've been tackling now for around the past five to seven years. It's going to take time to slowly peel away those lies because you're going to run back to them. You're going to think, oh, that was safe. At least I know that. And you're going to run back to them again and again. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'm trying to free you of that. So don't get down in yourself. But yes, acknowledge, ask for forgiveness, release, and expect him to show up as he speaks truth rather than running from that. And sometimes it's really painful. That's why we ask, do you really want this? Because if we love comfort and we love the status quo, the pain of growth is real. And it's not an idea, friend. This is an, an experience of God within you. I love what Gregory Palamas, he was an Eastern Orthodox theologian uh, at the end there of the 14th century, and he says, to think about God a thousand times without experiencing God is to know nothing. Come on. Yes. I'm going to go back to another artist friend, okay? Gregory Colsto. I think I'm saying his name correctly. Um, he has brilliant artwork. See, one of the gifts I have, friends, of working here is that if I get like five minutes, I'll walk down and I'll just start soaking in the work around here. And uh, Gregory Colosto here, um, he has a series of paintings out there on the hidden realities of our internal self. You see, God comes in. And what's so fascinating is we think we know where he's going. The reality is, is that the hidden world of our soul is just as murky and maybe just as mysterious as God himself. And if you look closely, you can't see it here, but I encourage you to go after today's service. There are these pump jacks throughout. Now, some of you are like, what are, what's a pump jack? Those are those oil rigs you see out in fields. And what he says there in his artist statement is that there are dreams, there are people, there are institutions, there are desires that are sucking the very beauty out of you. And you don't even know. They're so small, and they're slowly mining the best from you. What God wants to do is he wants to move in and he wants to both reveal what can seem so hidden and he wants to make you more beautiful. And here's what we, we are invited to do. This is why God wants to move in, friends. And this is what we have to do. We have to let God make us more beautiful. That's really the invitation. That's what he wants to do. He wants to come into the hidden realities of our soul, begin to demo some things, and to highlight some things, it's a mixed bag up in there. And he wants you to be the full self he designed you to be. To pull away the sin, the false self, the lies that are constantly mucking up the realities of the depths of your soul. You see, when God comes to make his home in you, he's not just making you livable. 
this is what we have budget for. We just got to focus on piping, you know. He's not making you sturdy. You know, this will stand a good storm. No, he is wanting to make you beautiful. And that's exactly where Jesus goes in our text. It wasn't read for us, but if you continue down in our passage in verse 27, Jesus, after all of this, says, peace, I leave you. But not as the world leaves peace, thinking of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was really isolated for a few and excluded many, demanded prestige before you could experience peace. No, this was a glorious peace, harmony, the shalom of the Hebrew scriptures, everything integrated and whole, well-being, or let's just flip it, being well. Who doesn't want to be well? Huh? This is what Jesus leaves with us. This is what he longs for us to experience. To dwell in peace versus pain. And so I want to expand on an image that I once heard from N.T. Wright, theologian and author. I want you to imagine an art collector. And he was finally given the most prized piece of art he'd ever laid his eyes on. Now this art collector was also an architect. And he had designed this brilliant house to fit his life. Everything about it screened him, or so he thought. And so he ran around the house, finally, with this prized piece of art, going from room to room, thinking, no, this isn't right. No, this isn't right. No, this just doesn't do it justice. Until finally it pained him to come to grips with the reality that the only way that this piece of art would be at home was to demolish, de de demolish the house that he himself had designed, that he himself had painstakingly built, and build it afresh. And so finally, the crew comes and they begin to demolish. He remembers designing those windows and looking out the windows for the first time and how they shaped the way he saw the world. That one wall, he felt the pain as it came tumbling down because he built it to keep him safe from the storms. So much of it was a place that he thought was safe. Yeah, sure, most people didn't know what was in the house. He knew most of where the murky corners were. And it had come to suit him, but it didn't suit the piece of art. And so finally, what stood before him, what seemed to be a pile of rubble, and he looked at the piece of art, and he reminded himself that this is worth it, and the house was redesigned. Now, instead of putting the art piece in just one room, the whole house is designed around the one piece of art. The windows are angled at such the right way that the light always brilliantly shines on the work of art. No longer is there a room that's cut off from the art. Every room has a window where the artwork can surge in and you can look out to see. When you come in the grand entry, there is no confusion as to what is at the center of this man's life because there in plain sight before all is the beauty of the gift of art that he was given. It was painful. It took time. He had invested in the old home, but he knew it needed to be redesigned around what he had now received. That's what God wants to do, friends. And oh, it will be so beautiful, but it is so painful. I can tell you from experience, some of you know it all too well. He longs to come and dwell within what the Apostle Paul calls our temples. To go deep within and to bring order into the depths of our souls. Oh, to have freedom 
in our circumstances, but to be enslaved within is the greatest weight of slavery of all. To know that you could live free, but you can't is a deep pain and weight. And praise God for the gospel that brings liberation from in. And when you do this, when you are more at home with God, then God makes himself more at home with you, friends. And listen, when God makes himself more at home with you, you know it's also true, you become more at home with yourself. Finally unafraid to look in the dark shadows of your own soul. Finally unafraid to repent, to surrender, and to grow and to experience new life. Well-being, peace. He's waiting, friends. He's, he's just waiting for you to invite him in, to love him, and to follow him. Because he'll make it more beautiful. The Apostle Paul says what he's begun, he's going to bring to completion. You just got to let him start bulldozing a little bit. Let's pray. God, you, <laughs> you came into the slums of our hearts, the walls that were covered with mold and with tears. You came and you paid for us with your death on the cross. You purchased us from a landlord that ran us into the ground. You came to make us beautiful. You see what we can be when you move in. You are the great creator, the great redeemer, the great restorer, the great healer, the great interior designer. Oh God, we've, I've grown accustomed to living in filth and calling it home. Some believe that they are past their prime. God, I know some here feel like they're a lost cause. Some here believe that they deserve to decay. I think some here believe that there's nothing better for them. They've got graffiti on their walls. They've got ripped out appliances where their heart used to be, boarded up windows, afraid to let anyone look in. Would you just would you speak the words of kindness and mercy and love to our hearts so that we finally open the doors? Renew us, spirit of truth, let in the light. Show us the work to be done. And God, would you begin to renovate our souls? Only you can. We love you, and we're open to go and do the work you call us to do. Amen. Amen.